Amen. It's good to see some of the choir back up there today leading us in worship. And uh, in some ways, today's message and the title of it, very fitting for today as we regather in the community groups and get back to more normalcy. I want to talk to you this morning on the subject matter, a new beginning, a new beginning. If you're a guest with us this morning, we have been journeying through the little book of Philippians. Philippians is a book about joy and contentment. And we've been talking about discovering true joy and contentment. And so if you'll find Philippians chapter 3 with me today and stand with me for the reading of God's Word, we're only going to uh, read just a few verses this morning, beginning in verse 12. Philippians 3, verse 12 and following. And I'll be reading this morning from the NLT version of the Bible. Paul says, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection. But I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it. But I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Father, this is your word. You inspired it by your Holy Spirit, and now we pray that through the power of your Spirit, you would illuminate our minds, that we might understand your Word and apply it to our lives. Lord, give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, with, uh, with Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, in the, in the background of our minds, I want to begin this morning with the story of the conversion of the most famous Baptist preacher of all times. And that would be none other than Charles Haddon Spurgeon who lived in the 1800s, died approximately, I think it was 1892, preached to thousands upon thousands every week, and his sermons were transcribed. In the days before computers, obviously, his sermons were transcribed about 25,000 times, copies per week, on top of the thousands that he preached to. Listen to what he says about his conversion. He says, I was years and years upon the brink of hell. I mean in my own feeling. I was unhappy. I was desponding. I was despairing. I dreamed of hell. My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness, believing that I was lost. Charles Spurgeon used these strong words to describe his adolescent years. Despite his Christian upbringing, he was christened as an infant, he was raised in a congregational church, and his, 
and his own efforts. He read the Bible, he prayed every day. But Spurgeon woke one January Sunday in 1850 with a deep sense of his lostness and his need for deliverance and salvation. He goes on to write, he says, because of a snowstorm, his biographer, I should say, because of a snowstorm, the 15-year-old's past path to church was diverted down a side street for shelter he ducked into the primitive Methodist chapel on Artillery Street this would be in London an unknown substitute lay preacher stepped into the pulpit and read his text Isaiah 45 verse 22 look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is none other He did not even pronounce his words correctly, Spurgeon said, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope in this text for me. He began thus in his sermon. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It simply says, look. Now that does not take a great deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger, the lay preacher said. It's just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. And then it says, look unto me. I, he said in broad Essex, Many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort and salvation there in yourselves. And then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look unto me, look ye unto me. When he had got about that length and managed to spin out about ten minutes, he was at the length of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery. And I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. He then said, young man, you look miserable to me. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow struck. Spurgeon's autobiography goes on to record his reaction. Spurgeon says, and he shouted, and he shouted, as I think only a primitive Methodist can. Look, look, young man, look now. And then I had this vision. Not a vision with my eyes but one with my heart. I saw what a Savior Christ was. Now, I can never tell you how it was, but I no sooner saw whom I was to believe than I also understood what it was to believe. And I did believe in one moment. And as the snow fell on my road home from the little house of prayer, I thought every snowflake talked with me and told of the pardon that I had found in Christ for I was now as white as the driven snow 
There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun and I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. A new beginning. That's what Charles Spurgeon experienced. And you know, when I read again this week about his testimony of his salvation, I thought once again about about the power of God to take somebody wherever they are in their walk of life. It doesn't matter where you are, where I am. God can take you right where you are and God can transform your entire life and make a new man or a new woman in Christ out of you. He'll give you a new beginning. I think of when I was 19 years old and a student at UNCC, I can still take you to the parking lot where I'd gone to my car and opened up the glove compartment and got a Bible out and was crying, weeping over the Word of God and praying because I knew God was up to something in my life like He had never been before and brokenhearted, I called out to God and God saved me. And out of that experience called me to preach. A new beginning. Many of you could stand where you are this morning and you could talk about a revival service you were in. Or maybe one night you were just kneeling by your bedside before going to sleep and crying out to God, calling out to God. And in that moment, just like with Charles Spurgeon, God removed the veil from your eyes and he did a work in your heart. He changed your life. He gave you a new beginning. Folks, that's what we're looking at this morning in regards to the Apostle Paul. And we see this morning in this text that God offers each of us a new beginning, but this new beginning comes at a price. It's marked by humility, by repentance, and by devotion. First of all, this morning, if you're taking notes, I want you to see with me the need for humility. Paul says, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things, that I've already reached perfection. Just think for a moment with me about who's speaking. None other than the Apostle Paul. He had been present at the stoning of Stephen in his pre-conversion years. He was a rising star in the Jewish ranks among the rabbis. He had been trained by one of the leading scholars of the rabbis, a man by the name of Gamaliel. As we saw last week in his resume, he had been circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. He said, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. You could go back in my family, my great-grandparents, my grandparents, my parents, myself. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. As to the law, blameless. You know, Paul, while he was still Rabbi Saul, he had shot up like a Roman candle. He was a rising star in in their midst. 
I'm sure many of the other rabbis would go home speaking of this new rabbi who was making such a name for himself. Not only was he knowledgeable in the scriptures, but he had a passion and a zeal that matched his wisdom. And then God converted him. God drew him to Christ and saved him. It wasn't what he was expecting that day. Paul was traveling to Damascus to actually go and arrest Christians. He had papers, warrants if you will, from the authorities in Jerusalem to travel up to Damascus where there was a group of believers meeting and he was going to arrest them and haul them back to Jerusalem and put them on trial. But God had other plans for him. God converted him. And immediately upon his conversion, as you read on in Acts chapter 9, the, the Bible tells us that Paul tried to associate himself with fellow Christians. He tried to worship with them, but they were scared to death of him. Barnabas had to come along beside of Paul and assure the believers that Paul was now one of them. Becoming one of them, now he was a targeted man. He was a marked man. They were targeting him for persecution or even worse. They couldn't believe it. In their minds, Paul has betrayed them. And so the disciples of Jesus had to get him out of town quickly. After three years in Arabia, where Paul continued to learn the things of the Lord, the Lord said, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. And so a Christian missionary was born. In fact, the greatest missionary perhaps of all times. Paul set out on his first missionary journey. He established churches. He trained men to lead those churches. He moved on, established more churches, trained more leaders. He doubled back around and encouraged those churches. He strengthened them with his wisdom and what God had taught him. And then God called him on another missionary journey. And he went about and did the same thing that he did on the first journey. He wrote letters to the, those churches that are now part of the inspired scripture. He was beaten, flogged, left for dead, and yet he got back up and went into the city and preached more. He was shipwrecked. He was jailed. And yet these things only strengthened his determination. Now folks, surely everybody would look at the Apostle Paul and hold Paul up as a gold medal Christian. And yet look at what Paul says here in this verse. He says, not that I have already attained. And he adds, I'm not perfect. The word perfect translates the Greek word tetelemai. I think of what Jesus said on the cross to tell us, die. It is finished. The word Paul uses here is a similar word. It, it comes from a verb that means to reach the end, to bring something to completion, to bring something to fulfillment. Paul is saying, I've not yet reached God's goal on my life. I've not become everything God saved me to be. 
I've got a lot of growing to do. I've not reached my potential. In other words, it was a deep humility that characterized his life. He recognized that every new day was a new day to serve the Lord and to grow. And every day involved new opportunities for discipleship. Every day was a day to be spent living for the Master. To seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Folks, with the Apostle Paul, there was no resting upon past accomplishments. I think about how unlike the Laodiceans the Apostle Paul was. Remember what Jesus said about the Christians there at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3? What did they say about themselves? They said, hey, we're rich. We've got everything that we need. We're actually in need of nothing. And Jesus said to him, you don't realize that you're poor and blind and naked. Folks, there is a humility that should be a vital part of the life of any man or woman who follows Christ. It's humility characterized by a broken spirit, by a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, a constant openness to the call of God upon one's life. Every one of us ought to have this attitude that we see here in verse 12 of the Apostle Paul, an attitude of humility. We need to face every day of our lives with this same humility. That yes, I'm a new man in Christ. Some of you would say, I'm a new woman in Christ. A new young person. God's called me, God's apprehended me, but I am not yet what I know that Jesus Christ wants me to be. I've got a long ways to go. Is that the attitude that characterizes you today? I need to read my Bible. I've quit reading my Bible, some would say. I've quit praying. I used to be concerned about the spiritual lives of those around me at school and work and in my community, but I, I'm not really concerned about them anymore. I've not lived up to my potential as a child of God. My heart is not where it used to be. My marriage is cold. It's not where it ought to be. My joy in life is gone. I'm not exactly sure what's wrong, but I know that something's wrong. Is that your attitude today? Would you be honest and humble enough this morning to admit that? Humility. The Bible says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I referenced the parable last week in Luke 18, the, the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee was, hey, I, I, God, I'm glad I'm not like that rascal over there. Here's what I do. You know, I do all of these things. God, you ought to be happy that I'm on your team. But Jesus said the publican would not even lift his eyes up to God. 
He looked down and beat on his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, he's the one that went home justified that day. Folks, that's the problem that Jesus had with a lot of religious people in first century uh, Judaism. They didn't see their need. That's the problem he had with Pharisees. They didn't see their need of repentance. They thought they'd arrived. And what did Jesus say to them? Jesus said the publicans, the sinners, the prostitutes are getting into heaven ahead of you. Because those groups of people knew where they were in the sight of God. They knew that they were broken and sinful. And but for the grace of God, they would not go to heaven. They realized that. But the religious crowd thought they were just fine the way they were. Folks, there's got to be a point in our lives that we're humble before God. In salvation, obviously, but even in our Christian journey every day. That as long as we're alive on the face of this earth, we are not where we need to be. There is growth. God wants to use our circumstances, His Word, His Holy Spirit uses His Word in our circumstances to conform us daily to the image of Christ. And that is a process that never ends. I don't, I don't care if you've been a Christian for 50 years, there's the need for this attitude of humility and growth just as much as for the person who's a new believer. You may be further along in your journey than them, but you're not further along in, in the fact that you need just as much as they need it, a humble attitude depending on the grace of God every day. The second thing I want you to see, the necessity of not living in the past. Paul says in verse 13, No, dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward. I think the ESV uses the phrase straining forward good translation straining forward to what lies ahead true humility is not simply a reflection in the mind it involves action the truly humble person uh, reflects on the fact that there are some things that he needs to forget that he needs to let go of that he needs to repent of. Paul says here, brothers, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Folks, sometimes we remember what we shouldn't and we forget the things that we ought to remember. It's kind of sad if you are around anybody who's losing their memory. I've got somebody in my family that way. My, my mom, we're struggling there with, with, with her memory issues. It's sad. 
it's not something to joke about. I, I, I read a funny story one time about this, though. A, a guy was sitting down talking to a buddy of his about a wonderful restaurant he and his wife had just gone to the week before. And he said, tell me about it and tell me where it is. I want to take my wife. And he couldn't remember the name of it. And he turned to ask his wife, and he turned back to his buddy. He said, what's the name of that red flower we give our wife at Valentine's Day? He said, a rose. He turned back to his wife. He said, hey, Rose, what's the name of that restaurant we went to last week? I'd say that's a man who has trouble remembering. But folks, sometimes there are things we need to forget. Things we need to lay aside. Things we need to repent of. Think of what those things would have been for the Apostle Paul. Back up at verse 4, we see that. He says, I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. He goes on in verse 5 to say, Circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. On and on he goes with his resume that he could have been very proud of. And he could have taken stock of all of those things and said, Look at me, God. Look at who I am in your kingdom. But he said, No. In order to come to Christ, I had to forget about those things. Not only did he let go of those successes, but in 1 Timothy 1, how did he describe himself? He described himself as the chief of all sinners. And so as a Christian now, Paul looked at his past differently. All of his previous years had been spent in vanity and pride. But now he sees he was the chief of sinners. He had persecuted the church. And in persecuting the church, he had persecuted Jesus Christ himself. Think of Paul being there at the stoning of Stephen. Do you think that bothered him? I think it bothered him some. Paul could have focused on that. Because after all, Satan is an accuser. 1 Peter chapter 5 says Satan is like a roaring lion going around seeking somebody to devour. And in Revelation 12, the scripture says he's the accuser of the brethren. He could have accused Paul and said, Paul, the way you, create, uh, the way you persecuted Christians, do you think God's going to forgive you? Guilt like that could have paralyzed the apostle Paul. But he knew it was something he needed to forget about and lay aside because it was now covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And in Christ, he was a forgiven man. I think of Simon Peter. Simon Peter denied Christ three times. And yet, remember what Jesus said at his resurrection? He said, go and tell who? Go and tell Peter. In other words, Peter needs to understand, I'm not done with him yet. He denied me, but he confessed it. He's repented of it. I've not forgotten him. I'm going to use him in a pivotal role. And so go and tell Peter. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, God had mercy on me the foremost of sinners, because I'd done these things in ignorance. 
Some of you think of things in your past. A broken marriage. A bankruptcy. A lie. Maybe something immoral that you've done. You think of those things. All of those shortcomings. And you know what you need to do? You need to, once you repent of it, you need to let it go. It's covered by the blood. Amen? There's absolutely nothing you can do about it now. And what does God say in His Word in 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to do what? To forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I know you know that, but sometimes Christians need to live like they know it. You need to lay that past sin and shortcoming at the feet of Jesus. If He's forgiven you, you're forgiven. If there's still somebody you need to go to and make things right, then obviously do that. But there's no point in continuing to live in the past. Some people are crippled by their past and something they've done in the past and they can't move beyond it. If God's forgiven you, forgive yourself, move on. Paul was able to move on. Think about everything Paul was guilty of. And yet he moved on. In Christ, he had a new beginning. I think of what the the passage uh, Jonathan put on the screens a moment ago from Psalm 103, that God takes our sin and he casts it away as far as the east is from the west. Missionary Bertha Smith used to say he'd cast it into a faraway sea and put up a no fishing sign. That's what God does. In Christ with our sin. Paul's own people, the Jews, harassed him. He could have been so bitter. You know, somebody could have said, Paul, now that you're a Christian and and you think of, of city to city that you go to preaching the gospel and planting churches, it's your own people, the Jews, who persecute you. Don't you despise them? And Paul said, no. In fact, in Romans chapter 19, uh, there is no Romans 19. In Romans 9, Paul said, I'm not bitter. I shed tears for them. I pray for them. In fact, I could wish that I myself were accursed for the sake of Christ if it would mean the salvation of my countrymen. Paul wasn't bitter. Some of you need to get over the past in several ways. Maybe it's past successes that you're hanging on to and proud of. Quit living in the past. A number of years ago, I think of a a woman in the church that used to always call me. It'd be about 4.30 or 5 in the morning. Folks, if a preacher's phone rings at 4.30 or 5 in the morning, it's usually not good news. But she'd be on the other end of the line. 
couldn't sleep, had a heavy heart. Preacher, I need to call and talk to you about something that happened in decades ago in the church, back in the 70s with her husband. I'd talk her through it, hang up, a couple of weeks would go by, 4.30 or 5 in the morning, same scenario repeated all over again. Her husband had gotten over it. He had been restored to the church fellowship. The church had gotten over it. She couldn't get over it. Call, call one of these six new deacons at 4.30 or 5 in the morning, okay? At some point, you've got to stop living in the past. I want you to see thirdly the nature of Christian discipleship. Look at verse 12 again. He says, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already obtained or reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. What's he say there in verse 12? I press on. Look at verse 13 again, straining forward. The Greek, the, the Greek word there communicates uh, a word that was used of an athlete if he was straining to, to his breaking point of even tearing the muscles. The athlete can't do any more. He's done his limit. He's left it all on the field, so to speak. Paul says that's what he's doing in his discipleship now. In verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call. He was determined to live with a present tense Christianity. Folks, every one of us needs to live out our discipleship in the present tense. He's saying in this race of redemption, I'm not going to quit until I apprehend that for which I've been apprehended. One writer says, you know, there, there's almost a gentle violence in these words. Talk about an oxymoron. That's one in it, gentle violence. But that's descriptive of these words here. I want to seize that for which I have been seized. Folks, when Paul told the Ephesians to redeem the time for the days are evil, this is not a principle that Paul just spoke about. It's a principle that he lived in his own life every day. He redeemed his time. Having left the past in the past, he thought of what was ahead for him, what Christ had for him ahead. The finish line was not to be found here on this earth. The finish line is the Bema seat of Christ when we all stand before him and give an account of our lives. It's very personal in a believer's life, meaning it's not just for somebody else. Every one of us are going to have to give an account. I mentioned Simon Peter a moment ago. Think of him again after Jesus appeared to the disciples. 
In John 21, Jesus said to Peter, Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And remember what Peter said? What about him? Pointing to John. What about him? Jesus said, Don't, don't worry about him. Don't worry about him. I got plans for him too. You, you go and feed my sheep. I think of William Borden. His dad had made a fortune in, in Chicago silver. It, it's not the Borden family, not the Milk family. That's another Borden family. But William Borden, he, he lived with a silver spoon in his mouth, so to speak. But God got a hold of him. And there at Yale, with a wonderful future ahead of him in the family business, God saved him and called him to be a missionary. Everybody said he was a fool. Look at all he was giving up. But he wrote in his Bible, no retreat, no regrets. And he prepared to go to the mission field. He was going to the Middle East and he got to Egypt. And while in Egypt, young man just fresh out of college. And while in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis and he died before he ever reached the mission field. Did he waste his life? Absolutely not. Again, think about what he wrote. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Pressing forward. There was only this forward gear, gear to Paul's life. Paul wouldn't show you the degrees on his wall. That's not what he took stock in. He wouldn't have displayed his trophies from the past. And likewise, he wouldn't have wallowed in his sins and failures of the past. He'd simply point to the map and say, God, where do you want to take me next? What's next, Lord? We know he wanted to go on westward to Spain. Paul reminds me of Caleb in the Old Testament. Caleb and Joshua were the only two who said we can take the land. The other, the other ten said no, the giants, the, the, the obstacles are too much. We can't do it. Caleb and Joshua said the Lord's given us the land. We can do it. Well, God let everybody else wander in the wilderness for 40 years and die off. He kept Joshua and Caleb strong at 80 years of age. You remember what Caleb said to Joshua? Give me this mountain. Caleb was ready to do what God called him to do. Just like Paul. These are men who died running. I'm not going to be trapped in my past. Whether by good things or bad things. I'm not going to be locked in there. I'm not going to live there. I'm following Christ today to apprehend that for which he's apprehended me and folks that same invitation and that same call goes to you and me today look at the course of your life right now if God saved you he set you apart called you to be holy and called you to follow him and serve him and to bear fruit Are you following him each day? Trying to seize that for which Christ has seized you. Are you living in the past? 
Are you in bondage to the past? Past failures? Or in bondage to past successes? Are you living your life present tense? I had Kevin read those, those passages out of Luke 9 where somebody said, Lord, I'll follow you. And, and Jesus said, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, if you follow me, you might, you might experience the same. Another man said, I'll follow you wherever you go, and, but, but, but let me first go home and let my parents live out their lives and die and let me take care of all these responsibilities at home. And then one of these years or decades from now, I'll get around to following you. And Jesus said, no, he who puts his hand to the plow and, and looks either to the left or to the right is not fit for service in the kingdom of God. Moving forward. Folks, that's what God saved you and me for. A holy life where we follow Christ and move forward. And as long as we're on the face of this earth, that call never ends. It never ends. Let me ask you to bow your heads with me this morning. Do you need a new beginning? You know you're a Christian, but lately maybe your life has, has been very little of a testimony to that fact. Maybe there's disobedience and rebellion in your heart. More than anything else, you need to revisit once again those commitments you made to Christ years ago. Maybe there's a humble recognition that you've quit growing or you've quit serving. Today, maybe you need to say, Lord, would you, would you renew my heart? Would you revive my heart? Would you warm my heart once again? It's grown cold. Maybe today needs to be a day that you turn away from some sin in your past that still has you in bondage. Maybe it's a day you need to get right with somebody. I may be speaking to somebody today that would say, I know that Jesus isn't my Lord and Savior in a personal way. Maybe you've been trusting in your past goodness and efforts or you've been despairing so over your sin you'd say could God ever save me today you need to come to Christ he can make you clean and give you a new beginning sir ma'am it's not something that just somebody else in the church can experience you can experience that God will save you and give you a, a new life, a new beginning. The prayer of many this morning needs to be, no doubt, Lord, help me to apprehend that for which you have apprehended me. 
I need to get back to a life of discipleship like that. A life of surrender. Where I can also say no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Lord, help me, strengthen me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. Would you stand?